Today's message was recorded live at the Middletown Seventh-day Adventist Church of Louisville, Kentucky, a safe environment where people relationships become kingdom relationships. Find us online at www.friendlychurch.com. Happy Sabbath, everyone. Glad to be back home, glad to be back in our home church this Sabbath. Uh, last week, last Sabbath, we were down in Collegedale at Southern Adventist University and we worshipped outside at the Goliath Wall, what they call Goliath Wall. It's a very um, uh, rock climbing wall and uh, they use that as the, um, as the backstage for, for the worship service. Beautiful scenery, so we really enjoyed it to be down there, but we really missed you. And today we're here to worship with you and to share the Word of God, the message that God has placed in my heart for us today. And um, I, um, I don't have a PowerPoint. I'll pray the Holy Spirit to give me the, po- the power to make the point. However, I'll be using the Bible. So um, I will be using if Yeah, you can, you can turn your Bible now to... Luke 10 and Matthew 22. Those are the main two passages we'll be using and we'll compare some notes from Jesus' words. But those are the passages I will be using. The title of my sermon today, Praying in the Spirit, Part 2, The Real Prayer. What is the real prayer? Is it the Lord's Prayer? Or is it when you go to bed, prayer? When you wake up, prayer, what is the real prayer? Well, today, I hope that by the end of this message, I will share some things that you can pick to make your own real prayer. Let us pray. Lord, we are so grateful to be in your house, to be here today. And as we engage into this message today, I pray that we will open our hearts and minds to receive your word. And I pray that we will be teachable and willing to listen. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to practice what we learn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome back to Praying in the Spirit mini-series, a, 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 a series of sermons within the greater series of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit series. Why do we do this series these days? Right? Good question. Isn't there a better topic to study? So, open your me, with me your Bibles, if you have not done it yet, to Luke chapter 10. The Gospel of Luke chapter 10. Beginning with verse 25, I will be using the New King James Version of the Bible predominantly, but I will also refer refer to a couple of other versions later. I'll let you know when that happens. Luke 10, beginning with verse 25, Luke writes, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do? To inherit eternal life. 
Luke writes, a certain lawyer. Matthew, in his gospel, gives us a little more background, a little more details, who this young lawyer was. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. Matthew writes in his gospel, Matthew 22, 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying. So this is a Pharisee lawyer. And he was part of a group of men who, who thought they had it all together as far as their religion is concerned. And it happened that Jesus was able not only to answer the question to their opposing party, the Sadducees, but Matthew describes, Matthew reports that Jesus actually silenced them. Whoa. Now it was this other party's turn to challenge Jesus. And this young lawyer, who is a Pharisee, asked Jesus the question. Asked Jesus this question with the intent of challenging Jesus, with the intent to make Jesus a public example, with the intent of embarrassing Jesus, with the intent to silence Jesus. And he asks the question, Teacher, what shall I do to, to inherit eternal life? That's how Luke remembers it. Matthew remembers the question as being asked this way. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Same story. So keep your Bibles open to both Luke 10 and Matthew 22. It is the same story. Each writer reports from their memory what has happened. Now, Luke writes, Luke 10, verse 26. Luke 10, verse 26. He, Jesus, said to him, to the lawyer, What is written in the law? See, he's a lawyer. He should know the law, right? What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he, the young lawyer, immediately answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus lights up and said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. And the young lawyer is like, Oops, Jesus got me. I just answered my own question. No, 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 I, I got to do something. I got to say something to get Jesus to silence. Verse 29, by he, but he, the young lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And at this point, Jesus, as always, he relies on a parable. And Jesus tells this young lawyer, and to the whole group of the Pharisees, and others who are watching and listening to their conversation, Jesus tells them the parable of the Good Samaritan. Have you heard the parable of the Good Samaritan? 
You did, right? If you're watching, and if you've never heard it, you probably have seen a store called the Good Samaritan, right? Or you may have been asked to, to serve at a Good Samaritan organization, right? The store and this organization is a social service organization. In most cities, a Christian social service organization who serves the needs of the poor. They serve and minister to the needy, those who have been hurt by other people, by the system. And Jesus tells the story of a man who is robbed by thieves, beaten, and is wounded and left to die on the side of the road. Wow. It's a sad story. And it gets even more sad. I mean, a priest passes by, the pastor passes by and does nothing. Then a Levite church administrator, right, passes by, and he does nothing as well. But then a Samaritan happened to ride his donkey down that road, and he sees the wounded man, gets closer, assesses the situation, and does something about it. What does he do? Verse 33. Luke 10, verse 33. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had what? Compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Now, wine was alcoholic wine. And alcohol is used for what? We've learned these days, right, in a pandemic. It's a disinfectant. But oil. Why the Samaritan? Why did the Samaritan use oil? Because oil has healing properties. I don't know if you realize that, but I mean, all those bandages that you get with, with things, you know, to, when you hurt yourself. I know my son is into skateboarding and longboarding and mountain, bo and, and, and he hurt so many times, so I had those. I know. They're oily. Oil has healing properties. And, uh, and oil will heal this man. The Samaritan knows that, and he poured oil over the wounds of this wounded man to heal him. Now, why am I bringing this story to you this morning on September 12, 2020? We've been studying the work and the effect of the Holy Spirit on people in our lives, the infilling of the Holy Spirit for over two months now. What did we learn early in this series, if you remember, about the symbols that represent the Holy Spirit? What did we learn? What represents the Holy Spirit in biblical symbols? How is it represented? 
Oil does, right? Yes. In biblical symbols, the oil represents the Holy Spirit. When you think of oil as the oil in this parable, it immediately makes sense that the Holy Spirit of God is the agent of healing. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can heal. Yes, there are many ideas, many suggestions, many human solutions. But the Holy Spirit is the healing oil who can heal many people who have been hurt. Some have been hurt for years, some more recently, but the reality is that there is no human solutions to the mess we're in. The solution, capital S, to the hurt is the Holy Spirit. And I pray and hope that the people of God gets it. It's not an option. There are three things that happens here in the parable of the Good Samaritan in relation to the oil and the wounded. For one, the Good Samaritan has the healing oil. Jesus does not tell us how he acquired it, how he got it, but the reality is he has the oil and the Good Samaritan is not selfish. In fact, Jesus calls him compassionate. The good Samaritan is a compassionate man who has the oil and he shares it with the one who hurts, the one who is wounded, knowing that the oil will heal him. So number one, the good Samaritan has the oil. Number two, he shares it with the wounded. And number three, the wounded benefits from the oil by getting healed. These days, my friends, there are lots of people who've been wounded. And I believe we as Christians are called to obtain the healing oil to do something about the wounds. The reality is this, what I see. Maybe I'm alone in this, but I'm sure some of us can observe the same thing. The reality is that many people, many of us, many Christians jumped into stepping into the action before having the oil in our good intent to help. And without the oil, we end up doing more harm than good. Yes, the world offers ideas and solutions. The world does not offer the oil. Only Jesus does. See, Jesus was about to, 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 to leave this planet, to leave for good, for heaven. And after he encouraged his disciples that he will come back to take them to the mansions he has already prepared for them, he tells them in John 14, verse 16, John 14, 16 says, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter with capital C. See, Jesus 
was their comforter, right? And now he's ready to depart earth. And he promises his disciples that he will ask the Father and he will give you another comforter. The healing comforter who will be able to comfort them and others. That he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth, he says in verse 17. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. What does Jesus say about the Holy Spirit and the world? It says that they are incompatible, right? The world cannot receive him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you, Jesus says, you, my disciples, you, my people, you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. And two weeks ago, we reviewed in my last sermon, we reviewed how the Holy Spirit dwells in us and will be with us. How does that happen? By a daily submission and a daily infilling or baptism of the Holy Spirit. My dear friends, these days we must be the good Samaritan who has the oil. It is not an option. You and me, if we call ourselves Christians and we want to do good to those who are hurting, we must have the Spirit that will bring about healing. How can you and I do the sharing? I presented last sermon the story of uh, Catherine, or I referred to her life story, Catherine Marshall, whose life has been transformed by the Holy Spirit. She prayed daily for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and one by one, every area of her life was changed. Every area of her life was affected and transformed by the Spirit, one area after another. But one area, one aspect that will be transformed by the Spirit is our prayer life. Praying in the Spirit is powerful. We learned last sermon that praying in the Spirit is more than just praying for selfish request. Praying in the Spirit is praying when the Spirit which is in you prompts you to pray. Praying in the Spirit can take different forms. And today I will mention three types or three levels of praying in the Spirit. Number one, intercessory prayer in the Spirit. Number two, persevering prayer in the Spirit, and three, united in prayer by the Spirit. See, we, we, we talk a lot of our desire to be like Jesus. And if we want to be like Jesus, we want to look at what Jesus did to learn from Him, right? Luke 22, Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. There Luke reports, and the Lord said, this is Jesus, Speaking to Peter, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. 
What did Jesus do for Peter? He prayed for him. He prayed for him because Satan wants to sift him. Have you ever sifted wheat flour or corn flour? I know I did. I grew up with it. We grew our own corn, and we did a lot of corn bread, you would call it, like polenta. You will find here some places like Trader Joe's, and even Kroger now carries it. And I love that stuff. But anyway, so we grew it, and I, you know, uh, we will grow our corn, and then we take the corn, you know, to the uh, corn mill to uh, to make flour. And it was very coarse, very rough. So we'll have it in big bags. And before we cook it, my mom said, "Hey, sift me a, a, a cup of corn flour, and we'll get that and put it in the sifter and." Sifted. Whoo, hard. Man, I don't want to be in that process. I don't want to be in that sift. I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's vicious. It is powerful. It's very intense. It's cruel for the, for the flower grains. And Jesus, the Holy Spirit convicted Jesus to pray for Peter and even revealed what Satan's plan was concerning Peter. And once Jesus knew this, he began praying for Peter. See, the Holy Spirit will do the same thing for us. He will bring to our minds someone that he knows is in, he's going to be sifted by Satan. So he will bring us someone that we can pray for. And one of the things that we will do as we embark on this 10-week journey of praying and devotions for the Holy Spirit is choosing five people, five people to pray for with our praying partner. When Pam and I engaged into this back on July 1st, we asked the Holy Spirit to guide us whom to pray for, and He did. There are two people who are among us whom we prayed for. I know we had five, but the rest were not here that Two, we had two that we prayed for. And we can see today, we can observe the progress of how the Holy Spirit works in those people's lives. It's amazing. It does work, my friends. It works. They don't know who they are because we pray for them. That's cool, huh? And this past Thursday, this past Thursday, I started the same thing, 10 weeks of prayers and devotions for the Holy Spirit with... uh, with a group of pastors from Kentucky Tennessee Conference. And uh, uh, we, I prayed with uh, my prayer partner. I, I picked now, and out of the five, I have four in my congregation. I doubled the portion. I said, well, if it worked with two, it might work with four. So uh, we're praying. Can you imagine? We have, <clears throat> as of, as of uh, last week, before last Sabbath, we had 20 families registered. Can you imagine? When we start this and everyone prays for five people in their families, in our church family, can you imagine the outcome of what will happen? Who? Praise the Lord. I'm so excited for the opportunity. Our families, our church will be, will be abundantly blessed by the healing oil, the healing spirit of God. Amen. The important thing is that we respond to the Spirit's prompting to pray. The the Spirit is putting the burden on our hearts to pray for a particular individual because He knows 
that intercessory prayer is needed on his or her behalf. Our prayer of intercession on his or her behalf will enable God to implement his will in his or her life. I'm telling you, everyone who has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, they did so because someone prayed for them. Dear friends, dear YouTube viewer, you are sitting here today, you are watching this sermon today because someone prayed for you, cared enough that they prayed for you and for your eternal destiny. The question is, what happens when we intercede in prayer for someone? Prophet Isaiah described what Jesus was to do on the cross. Favorite chapter, my favorite chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. Last verse, Isaiah 53, verse 12. Last verse, in fact, the last line of the verse. We are told that Jesus made intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53, 12. Jesus made intercession for the transgressors on the cross. The Hebrew word translated intercession is paga, which means to meet, to push against, to attack, to urge a request, and to make peace. A lot of meanings. But the reality is when paga, when intercession happened at the cross, significant encounters took place. Mercy met God's wrath. Righteousness met sin. Love met hate. And life met death. On the cross, Jesus made it possible for the sinner to make peace with God. And Paul exhorts us as Christians to make intercession for all men. 1 Timothy 2 verse 1 says in 1 Timothy 2 verse 1, Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. We are to bring out these encounters through intercessory prayers. Our prayer for the people bring about these meetings of reconciliation between God and them and meetings of dissolution between them and Satan. Why? Because we want them to be reconciled with God and we want them to be separated, isolated from Satan. This prayer of reconciliation and dissolution is found in the first promise of the Bible. In the promise that God gave Adam and Eve shortly after they failed and sinned. God promised to put enmity between the believer and Satan, which implies reconciliation between the sinner and God. Intercessory prayer is a major 
element in the ministry of reconciliation of God. And every Christian, including you and me, we are called to participate in it. How do you pray for the lost? How do you pray for the one whom you see as lost? I mean, you don't have to be God to see that some people are lost. Well, how do you pray for them? Well, the lost doesn't need more information. What they need is revelation, which is unveiling, unveiling of their understanding so they can see the truth of the gospel. Only by intercessory prayer will the veil causing spiritual blindness be removed from the mind of the unbeliever. So only by praying for someone that the Lord will remove that blindness. Only by intercessory prayer that will happen. And here is the reality. Satan does not want you and me to realize it, but we are to play a major role in that blindness being lifted from the eyes of the lost. Yes, we play an important role in saving the souls. Our intercessory prayers open their mind to receive the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praying intercessory prayers for them will remove the veil of blindness. Because people, I mean, let's be honest, sometimes we are, we're, we're self-blinding. We're blinding ourselves. And Jesus says, pray. Pray for others. Even though it's God's will to save the lost, believers must pray for them in order that God's will be carried out to bring salvation to them. In his book, Christ's Way to Spiritual Growth, you may have read parts or all of Dr. Saman's uh, book in the series of books, Christ's Way. In Christ's Way of Spiritual uh, Growth, Dr. Saman, who spoke here three weeks ago, on the screen, he wrote this. Satan is more afraid of your praying than your pure life or zealous witness. One's life may be a beautiful witness that cannot be silenced, but prayer, he says, is a militant force that has the potential of defeating Satan, destroying his works, and driving him out of places and lives he claims for his own. That's what intercessory prayer does. <clears throat> Practical application for praying in the Spirit. An intercessory prayer. When you pray for the one who, is needed, who needs the healing, believe that God is able to bring healing through Jesus to them, and just like the good Samaritan, allow God to work through you to make that happen. So God, the Spirit, and you both can work to bring that healing. The problem is, sometimes, if not many times, prayers of intercession seem to be unanswered, right? What do you do then? Well, you go to the next level of praying in the Spirit, and that is persevering in prayer. 
those of us who live in a Western culture, and I've been living in a Western culture for 28 years, uh, we, we live in the microwave culture. We look for quick fixing, quick fixes, quick answers to our problems. The truth is that persevering prayer is not an option for a Christian. It's a necessity. The truth is that uh, uh, victorious over our adversary personally and corporately as a church, we ought to be persevering in prayer. Jesus was acquainted with this type of with this type of prayer, with this type of necessity of persevering in prayer. And many times we find him praying entire nights, entire nights. In his book, Hidden Life of Prayer, David McIntyre wrote, It is not enough to begin to pray, nor to pray aright, nor it's enough to continue for a time to pray, but we must patiently and believing continue to pray until we obtain an answer. Wow! Like Elijah, right? And you may logically ask the question, Pastor Marius, why then is the answer to my prayer, to our intercessory prayer, to our persevering prayer, why is the answer delayed? Why? Well, there are several reasons. I will only mention a few. Number one, Satan will do everything in his power to keep God from answering your prayers. Remember the story of Daniel in Daniel 9 and 10? Satan fiercely resisted for 21 years days. For three whole weeks, Satan resisted until Michael came to assist Gabriel in the conflict with Satan. Number two, why our prayers, our intercessory prayers are delayed? Sometimes changes need to take place in us. So God waits until these changes take place before answering. See, the disciples had a deep searching of their hearts for 10 days of praying before the Holy Spirit came in the outpouring at the Pentecost. Another reason, number three, that delays in our prayer, uh, prayer happens, it gives us the opportunity to develop enduring Faith. James chapter 1, James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4 says this Consider it pure joy. And by the way, this is a New International Version. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Perseverance. The testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's what you do in a marathon. You persist. You persevere. You keep running. That's what happens in persevering prayer. 
you keep praying, it builds your faith. Answers are also delayed so we can learn something about God. See, Martha and Mary were disappointed that Jesus didn't show up earlier to, to, to save Lazarus from dying. But through the process, they learned that Jesus is able to raise Lazarus from the dead. Anytime God delays to answer to our prayers, it is because we have something to learn about Him. And there is another reason, and possibly the most fascinating reason, why persevering prayer is necessary. In, in, in the book uh, of Revelation, uh, chapter 5, verse 8, we are told that the prayers of God's children ascend to His throne. And Revelation portrays a picture of golden bowls being filled with these prayers. Very interesting. Think with me on this. The 24 elders are holding, all, are holding bowls full of prayers of God's people. And later, three chapters later, in Revelation 8, verses 3 to 5, we see God acting in answer to these prayers. So, it appears that at times, prayers need to accumulate to a certain level before God answers. Interesting. Ellen White actually speaks about this. In Manuscript Releases, Volume 21, page 155, she writes this, The revenue of the glory has been accumulating for the closing work of the third angel's message. Of the prayers that have been ascending for the fulfillment of the promise, and the promise is the descent of the Holy Spirit, she says, not one has been lost. The prayers have not been lost, she says. Each prayer has been accumulating, adding up, ready to overflow and pour forth a healing flood of heavenly influence. That's powerful. When I read that, I was... I was blown away. Notice that she mentioned that the prayers have been accumulating, and she calls these prayers the revenue of glory. The question today for you and me is, how much revenue have we accumulated in heaven for the things that we want healing from? Wow, isn't that amazing? We want healing to take place in our lives, in our church, in our community. She says, each persevering intercessory prayer has been accumulating, ready to overflow and pour forth a healing flood. And my prayer is, Lord, please let me, let us keep on praying for the healing needed these days. Now, we talked about many prayers, many individual prayers for a certain request. What if more people 
What if God's people would unitedly pray for the same request? Can you see the point? The bowl of prayers would fill up much quicker, right? The more people would pray unitedly for the same reason, the quicker it will fill up. I used to believe the, that united prayer referred to two or more Christians coming together to pray. And during the prayer session, each one would pray for whatever came to their mind. Each prayer would have some common elements, but each would have a number of requests that varied from the other people who prayed. This is not the Bible definition of Christians uniting together for prayer. United prayer in the Spirit happens when two or more Christians pray for the same thing. They are united in desire, purpose, and request. And I know it may sound boring, but it works. I remember, this is not even in my script, but I see I have a few minutes left here. So um, I remember that was back in 1986, and communism was the ruling power over Romania, and we grew, our church grew, we were filled up every Sabbath afternoon at a youth program, we didn't have room, there were people sitting outside, we needed a larger auditorium, we needed a larger church, but they would not allow, they would not give you a, 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 a working a building permit, yes, to, to, to build or rebuild another church, that was impossible. So you had to pray. So we had to pray. So I remember uh, there were big cracks in a wall, and I remember that we had to, we had to uh, uh, reinforce the foundation. So uh, people dug a new, uh, a, a new trench to, to, to reinforce the foundation, and we started praying. And it was about two weeks that we'd been praying, we'd been praying, we'd been praying, that somehow, somehow, we will have the ability to build our church, rebuild our church. And guess what happened? One night, nobody did anything, but the Lord sent an angel, and one wall of the church dropped, literally dropped. And the inspector came and says, oh, wow, this, mess, this is not safe. So you have the permission to remodel your church. And well, we remodeled and we kept adding and it, it was a larger church. It works when people of God come together and pray for the same thing. Everybody for the same thing. United prayer happens when two or more Christians pray for the same thing and they're united in desire, purpose, and request. They pray together at the same place, at the same time, one focus on prayer. And this will be our journey as we embark on this journey. In a little while, we will have one main goal. And the main focus, the main request is to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God so that our life will produce the fruit of the Spirit. <clears throat> when we are united in prayer, united in prayer, 
is a powerful force against Satan in our personal lives. See, we were not created to stand alone in our battle with Satan. We need one another's prayers for the complete victory over the enemy. Our battle against the enemy is too great for just one. We need to join together in prayer for one another and for God's work if we are to obtain complete victory over Satan and his forces. That's why I, I, I'm so excited when I see pockets of people, men or women, getting together during the week or on Sabbath afternoon and they pray together for one purpose, for one struggle that they have. That's how it works. We need to join together in prayer for one another and for God's work if we are to obtain complete victory over Satan and his forces. But if we allow ourselves to remain isolated from our fellow believers, we will not see the powerful answers to our prayers that we desire. Of the early church, the Bible tells us in Acts 1 verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer. This verse is saying that they united together to pray for the same thing, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And they did not stop their united prayer effort for the fulfillment of Jesus' promise until the promise was fulfilled ten days after they began praying together. My dear brothers and sisters, members and friends of the Middletown Seventh-day Adventist Church, YouTube viewers, you have listened to my sermons, experiences about living a life filled with the Holy Spirit. I wished I had enough words to describe the feeling of satisfaction of this wonderful experience. And as I said before, I don't want to promote this because it is a spiritual experience. If you would like to surrender your life, all of your life, all of your weaknesses and strengths, if to let go of all prejudice and all ambitions and invite the Holy Spirit to fill you, to baptize your life in His holy power, then yes, I want to invite you to join us as we commit ourselves to 10 weeks of prayers and devotions for the Holy Spirit baptism. We will follow this book, 10 Days of Prayers and Devotions for the Baptism of the Holy Spirit. But rather than doing a chapter a day, we will do one chapter a week. And if you're interested, please sign up. We have, uh, we have uh, sign-up sheets in the foyer, in the lobby as you exit. And if you are watching online, send me an email at lightyourhope at gmail.com. Lightyourhope at gmail.com. And let me know that you want to be part of this group. The deadline for registration is next Sabbath, September 19. And we will meet in person and online. We will meet in person at 1 after church. I think people, it's here, it's convenient. And we will meet on Zoom Sunday nights at 7 p.m. You can attend one or both meetings. We will begin on September 26 at 1 p.m. right here in the sanctuary. And 
September 27th, Sunday night at 7 p.m. on Zoom. Cost is $10 for the book. I pray that God will bless Middletown with his spirit that will bring healing these days in our life, in our church, and in our community. Amen.